Hi there, welcome to episode, I think, 119. God, I don't even know. Um, let me just check what we're on here. I've kind of been zoned out all day. I just got back in from Windsor. For some reason, I just went to check it out. It's fairly quiet, not much going on there, although I didn't really do much. I didn't really go and see anything touristy, but it's pretty enough. I like the old buildings. Uh, but I just needed to get out of London. It's doing my head in. It's a really difficult situation because, and this applies, I think, to, to most artists, you want to be in a place where you're stimulated, as I've talked about before, but you, you, know, you can't be in a place where you're overstimulated. So it's a really, because you can't work in that kind of environment. But at the same time, I don't really want to be in an environment where I'm just... You know, it's everything shuts at five and everything's just domestic, suburban bliss. That's just that kind of hell for me. I've lived in that. Um, and that's a kind of hell for me. Um, middle class, suburban bliss is just not not my idea of fun. And But neither is blasting, corporate, roaring, noisy cities. There just doesn't seem to be... I'm just bemoaning the loss of Bohemia again. This is just the same old rant as I'm always on. But anyway, there we go. I uh, The main thing I've been thinking about this week... Yeah, we're on a... Uh, 119, uh, I think. Uh, oh, no, no, maybe... Yeah, 119. Yeah, the, the main thing I've been thinking about this week... Is poetry. And the different forms of it. Mainly because of this... Leonard Cohen rabbit hole and I've been reading the book of longing which is the poetry he released which had basically the period when he was in a monastery and before he came, before he had to come back and make all his money back after it being stolen and uh, it just made me think of the the kind of poetry that I loved when I was a kid and that I always wrote when I was younger before I started getting self-conscious about being impressing the academic poets, you know. And it got me thinking again about that. It was about a year ago the, there was a sort of supposed split, but it was really just a newspaper thing. But the poet Rebecca Watt, who is sort of exemplary of that academic style um you know the kind of t.s Eliot tradition of poetry and criticism kind of going together and she had done she wrote this essay basically saying that there's a complete lack of critical thinking in in certain poetry publishers who are making a quick buck off Instagram poets who are not very good, who, who are just writing kind of adolescent um, diatribes and uh, there's very little craft involved, there's very little standard to which they're held and that this crit lack of critical culture in poetry, in mainstream poetry now, is, is part and parcel of the wider lack of critical culture that has led to Donald Trump or blah, 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 blah. Then Don Patterson, the professor of poetry at St Andrews, who's, who himself has been that kind of uh, Jeremiah 
spouting academic poet defended it because he's Picador's sort of uh, list manager and he'd uh, he claimed he'd changed his mind after being very much in that Rebecca Watt camp he over the years changed his mind and he said that there was a lot of value in this and that's why they'd chosen to back all these new spoken word and Instagram poet type people but Uh, it was kind of an unresolved split, basically. That's where it lay. And a lot of people have written blogs about it, and I've been reading that over the weekend and sort of reading up about it. But there's another thing as well, is that there was this uh, something at work, there was a story about Instagram poets, and it, and it pissed me off because... I'm an Instagram poet, for God's sake. I share my stuff on Instagram, so I'm, I'm and I'm a, and I come out of the beat tradition, which is very much not about academic, critical... Uh, that literary criticism and poetry are not the same thing, you know, and it's very much that romantic, Blakeian, uh, bardic, effusive, um, you know, enthusiasm is how you would measure it rather than sort of, you know, right line rhythm or, uh, you know, whatever it would, you know, it's, it's, the idea is that poetry should transcend its craft and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, but this thing, it, it does seem to me that there's a point of criticism to be made against the Instagram tradition, or, or tradition, Instagram culture of poetry, because it, it, from the story I was reading, it's all just glitz and grammar, glamour and celebrity and fashion shows, and it's just become another product on Instagram. You know, it's another marketing thing. And that's what annoys me about it. But it's a difficult one because I'm not, I don't consider myself either in the Rebecca Watt camp or in the spoken word uh, Instagram camp. I kind of hate both of them. <laughs> and I think they're both right. They're both right. Rebecca Watt has a point. There has to be some standard. They can't just be a free-for-all. Or else, you know, if everybody's got a voice, nobody's got a voice. At the same time, it shouldn't be this elitist ivory tower thing. And, it, and as Don Patterson said in his, in his reply to Rebecca Watt, there's a lot of fakery on her side of the, the camp as well. Not in her, but in, in a lot of that. And, you know, you can get published in acceptable, high-line academic poetry. This was in the PN Review, which kind of embodies that academic style and um you can get published in that kind of journal as long as you as he says play by the house rules that's kind of right i do think that that's true and it's part of my frustration with that is that as long as you kind of cajole your bundle of words into what seem like traditional stanzas and as long as you start off with some descriptions and 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 the point you make is made through revelation and epiphany and maybe it's a kind of it's not written in the first person you know as long as you can do that then it, you can pull it off you know and i'm not saying that that's just what people like rebecca what do there's obviously more to it but you can there's definitely stylistic preferences which are not actually to do with craft but which people will claim are does that make any sense so
Don Patterson made the point actually that at least in the spoken word tradition there is a value put on authenticity you know it's very like hip hop it's about being real right and that there's real value in that and he said perhaps the academic tradition could learn from from that I thought that's quite a good biting comeback and also his point was that you can't really measure spoken word poetry according to T.S. Eliot's views on what criticism should be. You can't really apply the critical method to that unless you are evaluating on its own terms and the critical method, there is method, the method in the madness of spoken word, particularly the kind that sort of comes out of the slam, competitive, uh, slightly antagonistic rap battle kind of environment, that in itself is a critical culture because it does have a value system. There is a hierarchy of good and bad and you are measured accordingly. So I don't know. I just, but it has got me thinking because I don't really know where m my stuff fits in really. I'm not, I do like having some kind of appeal to the tradition and I'm always trying to educate myself about that tradition and trying to to apply some kind of form to my poetry in a way that I didn't when I was younger. But at the same time, I hate that kind of smarmy, because I've been in this academic kind of academic environment and I know what it's like and that, and a lot of it is, are a lot of these uh, things which are called standards and which are called like in that in philosophy, there's the academic and continental split and the continentals are like the wild spoken word, uh, you know, effusive language and metaphor and, you know, it's creative, it's artistic, it's philosophy as art. And then the, the analytic tradition is the sort of philosophy as science. It's about method. It's about analyzing logical form and, and, and taking apart the concepts and philosophical questions and really just kind of dissolving and dispelling the question itself and reducing and, and really reducing philosophical problems to their the kind of nuts and bolts of concept conceptual uh, the conceptual tools and the conceptual ammunition involved if you like and I found that both of them are annoying because out of the sort of uh, metaphorical tradition comes the postmodernist, and it just goes disappears up its own arse. But then out of the 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 analytic tradition, you get the, the just kind of uh, snotty, smug, irritating, very it's and 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 just as stylistically chauvinist as the continental tradition. There, uh, you get that kind of snobbery and it is a snobbery based on style like, it, it has to be emphasised it's not actually any more rigorous really in the end of the day I think and I mean maybe there there is some useful I, both sides have their useful intuitions that are fundamentally true but they go too far and, and equally just become ideological and it kind of reminds me of that, and it's it's it, you find it exactly in the music 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 world as well. Like the technique, the people who think that if you can't play exactly to click every time on spec, then you're not a real musician, and that if you can't read music, you're not a real musician, and if you can't, uh, you know, if you can't switch up styles and you can't sit in a jam and apply yourself to pretty much everything, then you're not a real musician. 
And then, of course, there's the other side where it's all feel and, you know, that has its problems and, you know, the the idea that there shouldn't be any standards is obviously wrong. So it's always the same kind of back and forth that, and, and nobody really wants to just say, well, maybe there's a middle ground, you know. Um, because to, to, to defend a democratic view of creativity is not to say there's no standards. Is that, that I really believe that. I mean, I, as I've said before, I think we're all we are all creative, but we're not all artists. And the test really is how seriously you want to take your craft, and and the measure of it is how how much have you improved your craft since yesterday. You know, that's really the the only measure because you can't really. There's no real point in comparing Milton and Blake as craftsmen. There's no point, because both are equally visionaries in their own light, just in different ways. But there's no real point in, in comparing Shakespeare and anyone, really, but there's no real point in comparing, you know, Sappho and Kerouac. Who cares, you know? It's it, it's a matter, I, 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 I mean, I think that the real test of an artist is how much have they overcome in, you know... What standards have they set themselves and how have they fallen short or how have they overcome those standards? That's really the test. And arbitrary, stylistic... This, I think the bottom line is what I've said. A lot of these things were masquerading as, a, as ideas of standards and, and or some kind of manifesto about what poetry should be are really just stylistic preferences. Like, for instance, I think the academic style... And this applies to the analytic philosophy academic style as well. A lot of it's just anal retention and a fear of emotion and equally the kind of totally democratic or uh, uh, overly uh, effusive l language style of continental philosophy or, or spontaneous performance poetry. A lot of that can be shrill, hysterical and sometimes be masking actual mental problems, you know. So the, a lot of it's just a matter of style. And I think that that's, I kind of, that's kind of what I'm trying to say about this, this argument in poetry that's kind of ongoing at the moment. A lot of it's just preference, masquerading as some kind of objective standard. And people like Rebecca Watt and Don Patterson, actually, should admit that we can't all be Paul Muldoon where we write these very elegant uh, rhetorically s uh, sneaky and smart uh, stanzas where you know we have to you know read it 30 times before we can find some kind of revelation of truth through some kind of uh, Browning-esque monologue within a short story within a big epic within a blah 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 I mean Christ we can't all be that kind of modernist scholar slash poet, and who who the hell wants to be really? You have to have some kind of communic communicable power, and that is where the 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 spoken word tradition, and as it's influenced by hip hop, really has strength. At the same time, you can't it can't just be a free for all, and that's where ideas of establishing standards of craft and editorial criticism do have some merit so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that if I, I would I would like one day to be good enough to have 
to be to be able to meet the two somehow to 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 create poetry and art that's a kind of nexus of those two demands that it be direct and communicable and immediate and powerful in in the same way that a great rap performance is but at the same time that they're they're that it can be held to account by a a, a conscientious critic, and that because that's you know in some sense you need that I suppose but if you want to have lasting work and you you can only really do it by being some a, a, as severe as you can about being a critic in your own of your own work I guess and I, if I I suppose if I think about the last ten years of me trying to educate myself and become more conscientious and become more develop more my analytic abilities which are not my <laughs> my innate strength at all um it's probably about that it's but it's about becoming a critic of my own work and, and being able to think like critically without being because and this but this is the point it, the snarky people like for I'm talking about leonard cohen i looked up some of the reviews of his last collection, the posthumous one, The Flame. And there's this piece in the New York Times, I think about a year or two ago, by William Logan, who I think is at Florida State University or one of these states, state universities in the South, something like that. And uh, he wrote this very scathing, snarky, snotty piece saying this is just adolescent poetry, it's not, you know, he's overrated, blah, blah, blah. But didn't really actually. What's interesting about it is that, again, it, it is very indicative of this just simply a stylistic preference because he didn't actually critically engage with any of the poems. He just gave examples of bits he thought were kind of okay, but it was just sort of, you know, uh, flabby and blah blah blah. And I suppose if you if you if you want to measure Cohen against. Paul Muldoon or Louis McNeese, then it, it probably is, but it has other advantages. Um, and I, but I don't think it is. I, in, in actually, I think that one of the things I was thinking about Cohen, actually, having read about him and just kind of gone down this rabbit hole, is that it's interesting. He kind of was quite a formal. He did come out of a kind of critical tradition. He he emerged as a poet out of a group of poets that were surrounding Irving Layton and the McGill group in Canada. It was a kind of burgeoning new poetry for Canada. There was a sort of cultural need for the new poet and he and, and Cohen came along and sort of fulfilled that in a way. But they it's it turns out they did have a very critical culture. They were very severe with each other. It was very academic in a way. And the part of what his education was to sit down with his mentor Irving Layton and just go through maybe a, a, a Wallace Stevens poem or, a, or an Eliot poem and really figure it out and decode it. So he did have this very academic background in poetry. And in, and actually it seems, I've not read them, but from what I've read and, and watched, it seems that his first few collections were very much trying to to, to fulfill that kind of tradition but that there was a point after he started getting into rock and roll and he started becoming more aware of the beats and more aware of Dylan and that kind of thing and jazz he he, he made a, a, a conscious 
pivot towards the first person singular, towards a direct communication with with a particular demographic group of people who he felt were like him or would understand him. And so he he and and so he 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 made a pivot from relatively formal rel, uh, lyric poetry in a in a much more traditional sense towards a more free verse first person singular direct form of address and very personal form of poetry. So it's interesting he didn't start off like that. He made a pivot towards it. And I think that that's something that people like Willie Logan and, and, you know, the Rebecca Watt types have to remember is that maybe sometimes what they don't like is actually a creative decision. It certainly was that with with uh, a couple of the beats, actually. You know, a lot of them... Um, i to think of his name now. The guy who was a friend with Jim Morrison. McClure. Michael McClure. He started off learning sonnets you know he, he he started off from forms but then he started but but then he moved towards a very very spoken word type which was based on sounds very guttural primal the the kind of energy of the poetry and trying to 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 put that on the page so it became a very extremely spontaneous form even though he came out the same could be said of Kerouac, actually, and same could be said of Ginsburg, certainly, that they all, that there was a familiarity with the tradition and there was an understanding of the use of forms, but their they're not using those forms was a decision, not not always. Sometimes, maybe yes, but all not certainly with Ginsburg, you couldn't say it is because he wrote in traditional form before he became famous, and his dad was a traditional lyric poet, so. And he was always experimenting with different forms, and 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 you can listen to some lectures of his. They're really, there's some really uh, intelligent analyses of form from Ginsburg. So that a lot of this stuff is uh, it's stylistic, and and it, it does frustrate me. And I, I guess I spend a lot too much time thinking about it. Um, But as Rebecca Watt said on a radio interview, there's a tension between democratization and, and and standards, and maybe we need both. And I guess that's my position. But um, I guess I've just been I've been around so much academic snottiness, and there's a difference between being a critic who can apply a set of creative standards to a piece of work, and just someone who's being a snotty dick like that Willie Logan thing. And, uh, and, and it's related to the kind of snarky, smug, drugged up, suspicious cynicism of our modern age, the overindulgence of irony or sarcasm, really not irony. It's related to that because as long as you adopt a kind of snarky tone, you give the semblance of being detached from from things to being outside the system man uh this kind of hipster there's a relate it's related to that hipster thing and it 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 really bugs me that there's 
fake virtue, I guess. There's not, I'd rather have evil than fake virtue. I think this is a theme for me. Like, I hate political correctness because I think it's evil disguised as virtue. I'd rather just have someone, I'd rather have someone be aggressive than passive aggressive. I hate this kind of fake virtue. And we're, we're, and, and because we live in an age of marketing, we live in an age of fake virtue. On all sides, it's not a left or right thing. I'm trying desperately to avoid this left or right stuff. Another thing I've been thinking about this week is heroes. It's part of that kind of cynical tradition. And this is related to postmodernism, I suppose, and it, it's related to all the post-post, post-colonial tendencies, whatever. Is a suspicion of her hero worship, hagiography, a suspicion of idolatry of any kind. There's some merit in it, just like there was in the Reformation, some merit in, in, in saying, you know, are you worshipping the idol or are you using the idol as a form of worship for, for, for the, the greater truth of God? But it it goes too far very quickly, and I'm I'm a romantic in nature, and I'm not sure if I would go so far to say Catholic in nature because I definitely have yeah, Calvinist tendencies. But I'm Jacobite in nature, and I don't believe in this dismantling of the individual. I do think history is made by individuals, and I do think, and I don't think it's made by abstract forces, and I do think that. Heroes are a good thing. And I was, I, it occurred to me the other morning, and I tried to put in a phrase, but I don't think I quite captured my in intuition, but basically the phrase was, the heroes give us a model of being in the world, right? But that doesn't quite capture what I mean. I think what I mean is that, personally for me, having heroes that I look up to and who are kind of part of a kind of pantheon on, in my mind to which I've just added Leonard Cohen. You know, to name a few, I could say James Brown, Muhammad Ali, Patti Smith, um, Winston Churchill, uh, to, to put a conservative in there. Uh, it's got nothing to do with which side of politics they're on. It's more the, the examples of virtue they provide. Alexander the Great, Aristotle, um... I don't know, who else? Liam Gallagher, Bob Dylan, Jim Morrison. They're not, it's not, I think what the, the thing I'm trying to get at with this phrase that's been going through my head, which doesn't sound particularly original or, or thoughtful, because I can't quite capture what I was thinking, is... that somehow the heroes take away the despair that comes with a lack of a model in the world. That you need some kind of template from which, to, from which you're going to innovate your own sense of self from. And that's particularly true of being an artist because always an artist will have to come to terms with the fact that they are, their, their instincts create a value system which is at odds with a purely economic or materialistic or even religious way of looking at the world, that society's 
the necessary values of a workaday functioning society don't exactly jive with an artistic person's individual value system. And that's, uh, therefore, an artist by nature needs heroes because if they don't have heroes, they're not ever going to be able to be a useful or, or powerful artist in the world. It's about being in the world is the part of the phrase I'm trying to emphasize. And I've always, I think that's why I've always loved biographies is because the thing I'm always searching for is how, how am I, and it's not about, because I'm so different, it's none of that cliched shit. It's about being just someone who's interested in art, interested in beauty, interested in the imagination, interested in the process of being an artist in itself. It's something of value to me and, 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 and constant fascination in and of itself, just the process of being an art, artist, being creative. The, the development of craft, the development of a working process. None of these things are of any relevance to to what drives the mainstream economy or what dri what drives even mainstream culture, even quote-unquote critical culture as we've been talking about. Like, and so when the, ver when the things that matter to you the most are not only irrelevant or seen as irrelevant, but are, are seen, are treated with suspicion by the mainstream culture, then the, uh, a, a creative hero, an artistic hero, or a hero in general, someone who can give you a model of how to behave in the world, given this particular challenge you face as a human being, it's a lifeline, man. It's a lifeline. It's about survival. Uh, you know, I think there might some of these evolutionary theories about stories and the art, the evolution of art and the the, the the the. I don't like putting it in scientific terms because I think it's intrinsically valuable and needs to be taken on those terms. But they might be onto something in the sense that we need to have some story that gives us a place in the world. It's through a story about who we are and, and looking to other stories about people who are like us that we become, that we find a way to be and exist healthily in the world. And otherwise, if we don't, we, we are alienated and we're going to feel like exiles in our own skin, you know? Um, and so I, fi I find that, you know, people people have been cynical to me in the past about my tendency towards hero worship and there is a tendency in my generation and younger to kind of scathe to scathingly mock this idea of history as made of individuals or that you know the very idea of having a hero it's almost like you're 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 an unthinking religious cultist or something but i don't think that's true at all i really don't think that's true at all um Yeah, I think it's And for some reason this alienation that happens when you are an artist even though we've got more culture now than we've ever had and there's this mass democratization of creativity it feels more alienating 
it shouldn't. And I think I've been grappling with this. I've definitely addressed it before, but I, I just think that this has been a real weight on my psyche recently in the last maybe three or four years. Not just because it's difficult to find your own sense of originality in this world. It is, and there is that. That is a big part of the anxiety. But just that for some reason what one would have imagined on paper to have been something which would lessen that sense of alienation because if you're a creative person and you've grown up always feeling like you're being treated either as an idiot by your teachers or as a kind of uh, effect weirdo by your peers or being mocked and having the piss taken out of you or it just not being seen as serious what you're about to suddenly have this mass uh, expansion of creativity and everybody's a songwriter and everybody's a, a photographer and everybody's a, an actor now and it's so com it's so competitive because there's just so many people you would at least hope that because it, it, there's been this mass spread of artistic culture that somehow you would feel less alienated in the world because it's now so much part of the world but it, it, it doesn't make me feel like that it makes me feel worse, and it's not merely some egotistical thing where I don't feel special or something. I'm not saying that's not part of it, but I know some people have looked at me and thought that I sort of bask in the misery of that alienation of being an artist, but I don't at all. My, my greatest dream is to have a, a troupe and a gang of artists who collaborate and who recognise my talent. I recognise their talent. and It's a kind of Greenwich Village 1960 kind of feel or a, or a Paris in the 20s kind of feel or London Soho in the 50s kind of feel. You know, so times in, in history where there's been this real cultural context in which artists can flourish and collaborate and it's a strange fact of the modern flourishing of creativity that it has almost created more competitiveness, more nastiness, and that the, the, the people who are almost the people who are more of a threat to an individual artist or other artists. It's just created this real ego mania because I think because to related to the idea that there's just too there's too many people doing it and everybody feels really insecure about that. And so when another artist comes along, you're at an open mic and you see 20 other people with guitars, you just, your kind of heart doesn't, your heart sinks. You don't think, oh, there's 20 people for me to collaborate with. And by the way, it did for me at the beginning. I thought, maybe I'm going to meet some cool people here and collaborate with them. But over the years, and I've been at this for a couple of years now, and I'm not saying it's not part of... I'm bringing something to this as well, but I, I feel I went in, into it with open heart, but it's become increasingly snide and competitive and oversaturated and the, the hope of finding some collaboration or the hope of meeting like minds is, is just diminishing constantly. And... This is going to sound really annoying to some people, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think a big part of it is because 
this great flourishing of creativity isn't really authentic creativity anyway. That the digital culture has created an ersatz artistic culture. So we've got a lot of creativity going on, but not many real artists. I think I've said something to this effect before, but I, I, it really does seem that way to me the more I think about it. That that overly insecure environment of competitiveness and and snide, snarky put downs and just the the imbalance between massive ego and collaboration just the, the that it that it all bends much more towards that we're all you know I don't know I don't know what I'm trying to say I can't, I, I'm at a loss really <laughs> I I just think that it's there's a large part of the problem I'm, I'm trying to identify here is probably because a lot of what is passing for creativity, no matter how talented it is, I'm not talking about talent, there's a lot of huge talent, fucking, you know, but that's not the point. The point is there's a there, there isn't much respect for genuine visionary creativity, you know. It's. It, I think a lot of it's about power and career and marketing and I guess what I was saying about the Instagram poetry and it's not, I mean there's some, I've seen some great stuff on Instagram and even some of the people that Rebecca Watt was talking about, I quite liked some of their poem for the very reason that she hated it, you know, that it, that it was very innocent, it's, it's one dimensional, it's first person singular, it's about depression and carrying on and being brave, but sometimes that's good man. I've got nothing against that at all. If it's done in an interesting way and if there's a genuine, authentic voice in it and there's a playfulness with words that's, that's, that's more than just anything goes, I'm cool with that. If that's, if that's all the artist want is, wanted to, to do, I'm fine with that, you know? Um, but I think that there is this... I think that there's, there's some skewed values in, in this, whatever this mass... What's the word I'm trying to, to find on this? Let's just say massification of creativity through the internet and through social media. The massification of it. There's something askew with the values of that. And it's not necessarily that you can't be a good artist at all. You know, and, and, and Sharon, I fucking hope not, because that's part of what I'm doing on this bloody podcast. But it's... There's just something miss. It, it, it's not about. I think it's the the the. the I'm just going to be honest. I, I've vet, met very few people who I get the vibe off that they would say that beauty and creativity and art are of intrinsic value. That it isn't something about just elevating themselves. That it doesn't have that that it isn't. I mean, we've all got a little bit of that as artists. There is an element of ego in it, definitely. But there's there is much more to it than that, or else it wouldn't be so powerful. But the obsession with the, I think a lot of the the legacy of the, what Hitchin, Hitchens called the kind of repackaging of the sixties. What the, there's a legacy from that repackaging, which is completely taken out the idea of community, collaboration, 
common humanity and and all you're left with is a kind of the the, the power of creativity the individualism of creativity and i'm not against individual as i've talked about before but it, it that it becomes just about power it seems to me that a lot of people are in this game for power and I, I blame myself a little bit on that definitely but I, I think in the last couple of years I got over it actually I'll be honest I think that as much as I might have been influenced by that I'm not anymore because if I was then I'd be fucking insane because there's no fucking power coming to me there's no material gain here Um. So I think that that that's part of the that that is the problem that it that it's become too. The people are are so enamoured of of the idea of a career, and of on on of of the the power that it gives you, the the some kind of palliative to existential angst found in being an artist and being creative, which is true, but it isn't the, it isn't by any stretch the main issue. What the main issue is can't be put into words, but it's essentially of intrinsic value. It's valuable in and of itself. The beauty is its own explanation. I don't find many people who would agree with that. But I don't find many people who want to relate on that basis. If I went up to a, a bunch of people tonight in Soho uh, at a gig and said that, I'd get sneered at. And that's the point I'm trying to make. Sneering, scoffing, cool group, in-group mentality. It's all about... and But then it's all couched in love and peace. We all hate Trump. That's another funny thing about it. When in actual fact, it's very ruthless, cruel and Machiavellian, just as much as Trump is. And that goes back to my point. I'd rather have, I'd rather have an asshole who was open, an open asshole, rather than someone who pretended to be virtuous but was actually an asshole. So there you go. Another thing I've been thinking about is no, uh, no Gallagher and Liam Gallagher actually. So I watched very drunkenly the other night. I watched Liam Gallagher's set. At Glastonbury, is fucking awesome. I love his new stuff. I love what he's doing because it's that primal, guttural, fuck you, Muhammad Ali kind of approach to rock and roll, which is what we need because there's too many fannies. And but I also I sort of said okay I, I sh you know because I realised that there could be the possibility of an accusation against people like me who love Liam Gallagher that we're living in the 90s and that we're stuck in the 90s, we're living in the past, and that it's nostalgia-driven. And there may be some truth in that, but I think that it's... It, that's like a bit of a red herring because rock and roll is rock and roll, and what I'm attracted to is just good fucking rock and roll, and it's so, that's a good way of dismissing a necessary point that needs to be made, basically. So I don't accept it. But just in the interests of, of, of making sure that that couldn't be levelled against me, I watched 
I did watch Noel Gallagher's set, a bit of, well, most of Noel Gallagher's set at his headlining set of The Isle of Wight, which is on YouTube, and I definitely recommend it. And actually, my God, that guy is fucking rock and roll. I was thinking, oh, no, he's in that prog phase, and I respect it and everything, and, you know, it's kind of his Dylan going electric moment, so I shouldn't put it down, you know, maybe I don't want to be one of those naysayers who, like, in 10 years' time is like, oh, shit, I was wrong, everyone else was right. But it wasn't like that. I, I It wasn't, you know, he's not like... <laughs> One of my mates said, you know, when Sting made a double album of loop music, you know, it, it, it's you know, it's all very worthy, but it's not rock and roll. But actually, no, I, I realised uh, I was just being ignorant because whatever Noel Gallagher is doing in terms of like it's more like dance music influenced and funk influenced and all that sort of stuff, it's still fucking rock and roll. That guy still rocks. It's just more groovy, I guess, is, is my way of interpreting it. And I'm not, I've not sat down and really listened to it. So I'm not making some critical analysis here. So don't fucking sit there patting yourself on the back, whatever. I'm just saying, I'm just saying I was pleasantly surprised that it wasn't quite what I thought it was. It wasn't as esoteric, if you like, or, or, or technically... Or, or he wasn't dis- disappearing up his own arse in some prog rock technician's like obsession, which is what it sometimes seemed like in the way he was talking about it in interviews. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure it's going to be for me. And what I'd heard on that had been released that you know he'd moved away from songwriting so much as to kind of more dance music, you know. And but actually, it's not true. It's it's it, seeing it live. He still fucking plays a, an electric guitar and he's still rocking out on an electric guitar. He's just gone down. The, it's just funky and soul. It's funk and soul as far as I can see, blended into a kind of northern rock and roll. And he's moved away from the sort of beatily stuff that defined him, I suppose, and, and just looking for other things. And that's cool. But he's still rocking. In fact, he's better than he ever was, really. So I, I, I'm totally down with Noel Gallagher as well. Just putting that out there because I know there'll be some fuckers who just think, oh, you know, it's just more of the same from Liam Gallagher, blah, blah, blah. No, sometimes doubling down on a tradition that works is actually the most innovative and revolutionary thing you can do. And in this day and age, it absolutely is the case that Liam Gallagher doing that is a revolutionary act because the tendency now is to look for novelty and call that originality and innovation when it's just fucking narcissistic noodling. So that's my position on that. It's not about living in the 90s or living in the past. It does, however, I have caught myself being slightly nostalgic for that time, uh, and I don't like to admit it because there seems to be something wrong with being nostalgic. I'm not sure what, but it's sort of looked down upon, isn't it? But, yeah, so there, that's my take on that. I recommend watching both sets if you haven't already. Watch Noel Gallagher's set at the, on YouTube at the Isle of Wight and watch Liam Gallagher's set at Glastone. It's fucking great. It's fucking solid, actually. I was a bit pissed the other night, came and watched it on YouTube and it didn't quite sound right on my my uh, computer speakers and I was like, oh no, his voice is, oh no, I hope it wasn't that bad and I hope I don't have to just pretend I like it when, when I don't really like it. And then I watched it, the whole thing on iPlayer and put the earphones in and it, it sounds fucking awesome. Uh, really, really good and I'm really looking forward to his new stuff. 
And I don't think he is just doing more of the same, even though he says that he is. There's some of those songs on his uh, As You Were album are quite folky and uh, they're a departure for him if you know his what he does. You know, he's not it's not just ca- casual chav rock. You know, it's um, he, he. You know, it's not it's not jazz and it's not prog rock and it's not as technically interesting. Maybe as what Noel Gallagher is doing for the Muzos. It's not Muzo, but it's not just more of the same. I don't think that's true. Anyway, there's my there's my two pennies on that sort of stuff. So that's all I want to talk about today. Um, do I want to say anything else? Not really. I did a gig that I did a gig on Friday night. It was okay actually. I did I think five or six songs. I sang one of my own songs. I also read some poetry from my old collection that I released back in 2015, and it was okay. I was quite pleasantly surprised by some of the poems, even the ones I thought, oh, they're going to be shit now if I read them now. And I was like, well, no. There's real craft in what I was trying to do, and I didn't really know everything about what I was doing, or I would say now I'm more critically aware, and I can... I understand the difference between just something which is... a creative inspiring moment and 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 maybe the idea of a finished product as a poem so i understand more of the kind of rebecca watt types what they're after but i don't it what i was writing then and what i've i I don't think that it was just indulgence it was you know which is always the thing that's in my head i've got that scottish calvinist thing that whatever you do don't just be in self-indulgent you know because that's what artists are we always must be suspicious of them so i guess a lot of the time when i'm ranting on this podcast i'm fighting against that voice in my head um but i was pleasantly surprised when i read some of even just like the what i might have said were throwaway but there weren't there were there was there was genuine craft in the line you know um and it went okay I was chuffed with it. I'm I'm still a bit nervous, but I did some finger picking. And I wasn't too nice to the audience. I find that sometimes I'm too eager to please the audience, and I find that I've got to move away from that because it's not about pleasing people. It's about doing... It's about being of service, and they're not necessarily the same thing. Um... It's not meaning about being Liam Gallagher and swaggering on like a dick, but, um... I've got to not be scared of singing some songs that might piss people off. Um, or to embrace the fact that there's an aspect of what I do on fucking stage that's abrasive and what I am is abrasive. I'm not just a nicey, nicey guy. I am a bit of a dick. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much. I'll speak to you next week.